This morning our scripture passage is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 14 through 26. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is God's word. Amen. Good morning. Well, as I was uh, doing some final preparations and praying this morning, I was reminded of what a privilege it is to preach God's word and also what a weighty responsibility this is. So would you join with me as we pray and commit this time to the Lord and also as I ask that I too, even as I preach God's word, would stand with you under its authority. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do confess together that this word, the Holy Scriptures, Lord, that the Bible is the word of wisdom. It bestows truth. It contains depths beyond our mortal knowing. It is bread to nourish. It is seed for sowing. And so we do pray together that you would open now your Scriptures to us. Help us to be humble. Help us to stand under the authority of your word so that as we believe, as we see the beauty of the gospel revealed in the pages of Scripture, we would respond with joyful obedience and with eternal praise to your name. Lord, bless this time. Make it good for our hearts. Make it strengthening, a nourishing meal as we approach this week and seek to live for you, our Savior. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Well, I want to begin this morning by thinking together about the power of words. The power of words. It was approximately 20 years ago that one man in the state of Texas, through convincing words that sought to prove to people that he was a kind of Christ or Messiah, was able to gather together a crowd of followers who believed him, who were taken in by his words, and who ultimately then came together to a fiery death as the police and the FBI closed in on their compound. I'm talking, of course, about David Koresh, the Branch Davidians, and the power of that man's words to deceive. Some of you have followed uh, in the past week or so the, the verdict of the George Zimmerman Trayvon Martin case and trial. And you've seen, as I have, the angry tweets and articles and uh, interviews that have come out from public figures and athletes and movie stars in response to that verdict, speaking on from many different perspectives. There was one teenage boy who was actually brought in by the FBI because of his tweet following the verdict, threatening to engage in a massacre of killing in response to it. The power of words to incite a response. And anyone here who has ever been hurt deeply by words spoken to you by someone that you love and care about knows that that little well-known phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones but words may never hurt me, is simply not true. You know the power of words to harm. So words are powerful, and it is the topic of words that Paul has on his mind as he writes this part of this letter to Timothy. Words. There are two major contrasts in this passage. There's a contrast between two different kinds of people, and those people are contrasted on the basis of what kind of word or words they give themselves to in their lives. So first of all, a contrast in people. And as we begin, before we dive into this text in more detail, I want you to just scan over some of these verses with me. So a contrast in people. First of all, word people contrasted with words people. The word, the Bible, scripture versus other kinds of words. Look at how a word person is described. Look at 15. A word person is described as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. In verse 20, such a person is described as a vessel of gold and silver. And then down in verse 21, a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. And then down in verse 24, a word person is the Lord's servant. And then words people, people who are following other words than Scripture. In verse 16, these are people who are led by Babel, by reverent Babel, into ungodliness. Verse 18, these are people who have swerved from the truth. Verse 21, these are vessels for dishonorable use. Verse 23 to 24, these kind of people can be quarrelsome. And then finally, the kicker, the great revelation about such people, verse 26, they are actually ensnared by the devil. So word people and words people. And they're contrasted on the basis of the kind of word they're giving themselves to. So you have the word of truth on the one hand. Look at 15. It's called that, the word of truth. 
Then Paul makes reference to the truth in 18. He calls his servant to teach, able to teach in verse 24. That is the true word. And then again a reference to knowledge of the truth in 25. And then on the other end of the spectrum you have words of quarrels and babbling. And Paul describes these kinds of other words in various ways in our passage. So in verse 14, he speaks about quarrels about words. In 16, he calls it irreverent babble. In 17, he talks about this talk spreading like gangrene. And then in verse 23, he labels it foolish, ignorant controversies. So a contrast in words. Well, I think based on this major contrast that we see in this passage, we can look at verses 14 to 15 as kind of theme verses for the entire section. So we'll begin by looking at those two verses together this morning, verses 14 and 15, Paul's theme for everything that he'll say to Timothy in this passage. So the theme is words versus the word, the word of Scripture. In other words, the call from Paul is to Timothy Timothy, be a person of the word rather than a person of other kinds of words. Look at 14. He begins this way. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. So that's how Paul begins. He said, Timothy, don't stay away from these quarrels about words, that is, conversations and debates that are disconnected from Scripture as the ultimate authority. He has in mind stupid debates, arguments that are about nothing, but also more than that, words that are engaged in without reverence and care and grounding in Scripture. In other words, he's talking about people who give themselves to words without submitting those words to the Word of God. Now, as the passage goes on, we'll see that Paul has kind of a multi-tiered idea and description of words. Foolish, stupid debates and unimportant things, but also the development of foolish words that can potentially grow into serious and destructive heresies or false teaching, false belief. So he'll mention different kinds of words. He'll talk about quarreling words or babble or foolish, ignorant controversies. But they all have one thing that holds them together, even though they're described in different ways. They are all not in submission to God's word, Scripture. We'll see, too, that the response of God's worker, God's servant, to these different kinds of words must be multi-tiered. There needs to be wisdom. You know when to ignore and when to stay away, when to engage. But we'll talk more about that in a moment. Look at 15 then. The words contrasted with the word. Paul says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Paul's call to Timothy is to commit himself to submitting every conversation and every debate to the word of Scripture, rightly handling the word of truth. This is the characteristic, Paul says, of a worker of God who does not need to be ashamed. This is how Timothy, a pastor, is to present himself to God, not quarreling about words, but grounding himself in God's word and handling it well. 
Now, we need to stop here for a moment. If this is Paul's big point, you need to be people of the word rather than people of other kinds of words. We should ask the question, what is it about the Bible? What is it about this word that makes Paul say this with with such strength and passion and force to this young pastor? What is it about the Bible? Well, first of all, as we've already seen in 15, 18, and 25, the Bible, according to Paul, is truth. It is true, the true representation of reality and about God's work, the creator God, God's work in this world to save. It is truth. But also, we'll see just in the next chapter a fuller description of the power and effectiveness of the word. Turn over to chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, where Paul explains more in detail what the word can do. So 2 Timothy 3, beginning in 15, he says, From childhood, Timothy, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In short, Paul is saying that God's Word, the Bible, is God's way of giving us His truth and building us up in salvation and life that's lived in obedience to Jesus. That's why we must be people of the word. So the big point is clear to us today. Be people of the word, not people of other words, whether they be stupid arguments or irreverent irreverent words or any other conversation that's not under the authority of the Bible. And what Paul does for the rest of the passage, verses 16 to 26, is drive this point home to Timothy in three different ways. First, he gives him an example of what this looks like, the importance of this truth. Then he gives him a picture of what this contrast looks like from God's perspective. So an example and then a picture. And finally, in 23 to 26, he gives him instruction. Instruction on how a word person should know when and how to engage with people who have been drawn astray, taken astray by other kinds of words. So an example, a picture, and an instruction. That's how Paul drives this point home. First of all, by way of example. That's 16 to 19. And Paul's point in this example is this. Timothy, words are never just words. In other words, words go somewhere. That's his point in this example. Look at 16. But avoid irreverent babble. Paul writes, for it, will teach, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. So Paul says, avoid irreverent babble. The literal translation of this is something like undisciplined talk or unrestrained talk. That is, babble that is out from under the discipline of being guided and restrained by God's word. That's irreverent babble. Why should Timothy avoid this? Because, Paul says, it leads people into more and more ungodliness. That's huge. Not just wrong ways of thinking, wrong ways of living. Paul says it's not just ideas that this irreverent babble will, will, will affect. It will actually lead to life change. The key point that Paul is making about words is that they lead somewhere. They actually do have an effect on how people live. 
Now we should stop for a moment and consider some implications of this. If words really do have an effect on the way we live, think back on the past week. How have you joked and what kind of jokes have you listened to? What lyrics have we taken in as we've listened to music in the car or at work? What other words have we taken in, consciously or subconsciously? I think in the Christian world about the blogosphere. Now, I am well aware that there are many blogs that are filled with edifying things that are Bible-centered and gospel-focused and good for us to read and good for us to write. Some of you here are writing some of those. But I also think, I've seen, that even in the Christian world, there is, under the guise of being real or being authentic or showing our brokenness, an engagement in this kind of unrestrained, irreverent spewing of thoughts and emotions that are not under the guidance and authority of Scripture. Irreverent babble. Unrestrained, undisciplined spewing of talk. Paul says it's that kind of babble that can lead to ungodliness. Talk can lead to changes in life. And then look what he says about this kind of talk in 17. Their talk will spread like gangrene. That's the little example he uses of how it will spread. Now, many of us have probably not seen a gangrenous infection. I haven't. People in Paul's day would have been a little more familiar with it in the days before modern medicine. So I looked up the kind of gangrene that Paul is probably using in this illustration. It's called wet gangrene. Uh, Plug your ears if you get grossed out easily. Here's the description. Wet gangrene. Unlike dry gangrene, wet gangrene almost always involves an infection. Injury from burns or trauma where a body part is crushed or squeezed can rapidly cut off blood supply to the affected area, causing tissue death and increased risk of infection. It is called wet gangrene because of all the pus. Infection from wet gangrene can spread quickly throughout the body, making wet gangrene a very serious and potentially life-threatening condition if not treated quickly. Paul is saying that's what their talk is like. That's what a reverent babble is like. That's what it can do. That's how serious it is. That's how quickly it can spread. That's how disgusting it is. It can spread like gangrene. And then in 17, the second half of 17 through 18, we see that these false words have actually grown into something even more serious. Look at the second half of 17. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So irreverent Babel now, according to Paul, has grown into all-out heresy, a full, deathly infection for all who would be susceptible to it. And he gives us an example of two specific men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who would have been familiar to Timothy. He would have known these men. In fact, Paul has actually mentioned Hymenaeus to Timothy before, in 1 Timothy. And he said that he's a man who he has already turned over to Satan in order that he might learn not to blaspheme. So Hymenaeus has been at it for a while. But now he's dragged this other man, Philetus, into it with him. And their irreverent babble has grown into a dangerous mistake 
that is focused on a central core doctrine of the Christian faith, the resurrection. And according to 18, they were saying that this resurrection, that is the resurrection of believers, not Jesus' resurrection, but the bodily resurrection of believers, has already happened. Now, this doesn't make much sense to us initially. We wonder why people would fall for this. If I stood up here this morning and said, hey, good news, the resurrection has already happened, we would all look around and say, no, John, we're still here. And some of you would say, I'm still sick, yeah. But what these men were probably teaching is that the resurrection is not a bodily resurrection that Christians should hope for, but it's actually a metaphorical resurrection. It's a spiritual resurrection. It's just a way of talking about faith in Jesus Christ. So we've already been, we've already been raised. We're already living in resurrection glory, the result being that we can live however we want, that we no longer have to care, have to be careful, have to, have to worry about morality in these earthly bodies because we've already been spiritually raised with Christ. It was an excuse for these men to live however they wanted to live sexually, or pursuing their own selfish desires. This, Paul says, is where non-word-grounded words lead into ungodliness. And friends, this is with us today. Perhaps not this exact false teaching, but false teaching that comes from words and quarrels and irreverent babble that isn't grounded, that aren't grounded in God's Word. And I want to dwell on this together for just a moment. Because Paul calls these men out by name. And he calls their teaching out by name. Now he's an apostle, so he's in a slightly different category than we are. So I'm not going to stand up here this morning and begin naming the heretics in the Christian world. I don't think that's necessarily my job. But I do think we can look at the words, we can look at the teachings, the heresies that have taken root and grown and say that's dangerous and it's wrong and it's against God's word. I'm thinking, for example, about words that deny eternal punishment for those who reject Jesus as Savior and Lord. I'm thinking, for example, about words that promise material prosperity to all who follow Jesus Christ and have enough faith. I'm talking about words that find a way to excuse intentional, unrepentant sin in the lives of believers who are called to be holy. We should call those out as what they are. Well, verse 19, Paul ends this section by reminding Timothy of the end of this kind of destructive talk, where this leads. Look at 19. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, the second quotation is is from the Old Testament, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. It's a bit hard to figure out exactly where Paul's quoting from. It's probably from Isaiah, and it's certainly a call for word-centered people to depart from sin. The first quotation, though, definitely comes from Numbers chapter 16. And it's interesting that Paul goes here at this point. So turn with me, if you will, to Numbers chapter 16. As Paul talks about the end of these kinds of words, where these, this kind of irreverent babble, false teaching will lead. 
It's Korah's rebellion. It's this group of men who rebel against God's word and against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. So number 16, we'll start reading right at verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Koath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So these men, with whom Paul groups Hymenaeus and Philetus, have risen up against God's word and against God's leaders, Moses and Aaron. Verse 4, when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and all his company, and this next phrase is the phrase that Paul picks up on in our chapter. He said to Korah and all his company, in the morning, the Lord will show who is his. As Paul, as Paul translates it, the Lord knows those who are his. Verse 19, Paul is grouping Hymenaeus and Philetus with the sons of Korah who rose up in rebellion against God's word and God's leaders in the days of Moses. And he is saying, God knows who truly belongs to him. In other words, judgment will come for those who deny God's word, God's teaching, the truth of the gospel. And if you'll read on in the story of Numbers, God literally makes the ground open up and swallow these men. In the morning, the Lord will show who is his. So it's meant to be a comfort to Timothy, but it's also meant to be a devastatingly foreboding word to those who are rejecting the truth of the gospel, men like Hymenaeus and Philetus. This is an example. Well, the second thing Paul does, he's given this example then in 16 to 19. He then paints a picture. He gives us an illustration of the contrast between word people and words people, verses 20 to 22. So look with me at verse 20. Paul says, In a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. That's the picture. It's an illustration from a house. So Paul says, that In a house there are two different kinds of vessels. There are gold and silver vessels. Those are honorable. And there are wooden, wooden and clay vessels. Those are dishonorable. He's referring to something that would have been very familiar to Timothy, very familiar to the people of his day, the fact that different vessels in a house were used for different household tasks. So the gold, gold and silver vessels would have been used for dining and perhaps set up as decorations. And the wooden and clay vessels would have been used for other tasks that we won't go into a lot of detail about, probably relating to the bathroom. The point from this little illustration in verse 20 is that we want to be useful. We want to be honorable dishes for God, the master of the house. That's the point. So while Timothy, a worker of the word, can be useful, can be honorable, Hymenaeus and Philetus and all who follow their kind of words are useful only for carrying filth. That's the illustration. That's all they're good for, carrying filth. Vessels of wood and clay. Verse 21 then is Paul's explanation of how we can become useful to the master of the house. 
In other words, how can a vessel of wood and clay actually become a useful, honorable vessel of gold and silver? Now, I want you to notice something very important about verse 21. Just as the irreverent babble of Hymenaeus and Philetus was connected to sinful lifestyle, so the word commitment of Timothy will be connected to his holy and obedient lifestyle. That's why Paul goes where he does in verse 21. He'll say in many other parts of the book, Timothy, you need to be a good teacher of God's word, faithfully committed to the word of the gospel. But in verse 21, he connects it to his holiness, to a lifestyle that's obedient and set apart to God. Those are always connected. So look, at, look with me at verse 21. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now this is where the gospel must break in to this passage and this sermon. How are we cleansed? That's the question we should ask ourselves when we read verse 21. How is one cleansed? Do, do we clean ourselves up? Do we somehow wash ourselves and, and, and turn our lives around and then we're, we'll get ready to serve God? Do we do that on our own strength? Well, the rest of Paul's writings and the rest of Scripture shouts no. What is the only way we're cleansed? It's by the blood of Jesus Christ. As we repent of our sin, as we realize that every one of us apart from Christ is a vessel of dishonorable use, we're filled with filth. And we need the blood of Jesus to cleanse us, to wash us, to save us, to make us new. And that's what he promises to do for all who put their faith in him. That's where the gospel comes in. Cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And then the second half of 21, set apart, useful, and ready for every good work. So let me say two words of application just on that verse. First of all, if you want to be useful to God, if you want to be a vessel of honorable use, and hopefully you all do, you must do more than simply affirm the truth of God's word. James says that the demons believe in God and they shudder. How must we prepare to be useful to God? How are we made into honorable vessels ready to do God's work? We must first be cleansed. Are you cleansed? Have you given yourself to Jesus, repented of your sin, and been washed by his blood and made new? Is that a reality in your life? It can be if it's not yet. And if that's not the case or you're not sure that you have truly been cleansed through faith in Jesus Christ, then forget the rest of what I'll say this morning and focus on making 21 a reality through faith and repentance in Jesus. Because no matter where you've been, he will accept you. His death, his grace, his sacrifice, and his life is enough for you. But secondly, if you are cleansed, and many of you are, many of you belong to Jesus Christ through faith and repentance, if you are, if that's you, verse 21 should be deeply encouraging. You should circle verse 21 in your Bible because it tells you that no matter where you are in your growth in Christ, and none of us is perfect, 
although we should all be making progress in holiness, but it tells us that in Christ, we are not worthless, we are not useless, but we are actually honorable vessels, useful to God and ready for every good work. That's how God sees us, those of us who are in Christ. That should be encouraging. That this week, you can leave here ready for the good work that God has prepared for you before the foundation of the earth, as Paul says in Ephesians. Be encouraged. Well, verse 22, the last verse in this section, is a call to flee the sinful desires that accompany a life outside of the authority and rule of God's word. So look at 22. Flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In other words, Timothy, if you have been cleansed, and you have, continue to flee sin and pursue the righteousness of Christ along with all who do the same. So this is the picture that Paul gives to Timothy. Two different kinds of vessels, one honorable, one dishonorable, and the question is, will you submit to God's word? Will you be cleansed in Christ and so be set apart as a useful and honorable vessel for him? And finally, Paul ends with words of instruction in verses 23 to 26. He's given an example, he's painted a picture, and now he gives specific instructions for how a word person should be ready to engage with those who have fallen prey to false words. How should a word person engage with someone who's far from the gospel? Another way to look at this is flowing out of verse 21, answering the question, what is the good work spoken of in verse 21 that God calls his, work pe- his word people to do in terms of those who've turned away from the word of the gospel to other words? Now, this is important to Timothy as a pastor, but it also is important to us because if you are in Christ, you're called to be a person of the word And you need to know how to engage with false, foolish, irreverent words. So, verse 23, how do we engage? First of all, we know when to avoid. Look at 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. The literal sense is stand aloof. Know when to stand aloof from these kinds of things. So, wisdom and discernment are needed here. Now, isn't Jesus the best example of that? Of having wisdom and discernment, knowing when to engage and when to stand removed? There are times that the gospel writers show us Jesus being attacked by questions that he knows are designed to trap him, and he gives them no answer. And then there are times when the Sadducees come to Jesus men who don't believe in the resurrection, an interesting parallel with our passage. And they give him a a make-believe scenario. They say there was a woman who was married to seven different husbands during the course of her life. So which one will she be married to in the resurrection for all of eternity? And Jesus confronts them on the basis of the word and says, are you not in error because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? So Jesus knows when to engage, when to stand aloof. This leads us into verse 24. Because Paul's second point is this, when appropriate, teach well. In other words, we don't just avoid irreverent babble. We don't get caught up in it, but we do engage it with the truth of God's word. But how do we do this? How do we do this? 24 to 25. 
And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. How are we to engage people who are far from the gospel? How are we to engage people who've bought into false words and false teaching? We engage them on the basis of God's word without quarreling, 24a. In other words, not in order to pick a fight with them. We engage them with kindness, 24b. That is, with respect for those whom we teach and correct. We engage ready to endure evil, 24c. That is, ready to absorb insults or, 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 or verbal abuse that may come as we speak the words of the gospel. 25a, we do it with gentleness, not trying to just win an argument, but actually caring for the hearts and souls of the people that we engage. We were in Bible study this past week, and and one one of the young women put it this way, it's less about the topic that you can engage, that you engage in, and more about your attitude as you engage with that person. I think she's right. And then finally, 25 to 26, we engage with people who are who have bought lies by hoping for their repentance. Look at 25b to the end. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now notice, Paul says it's not just a change of mind that's needed. It's not just convincing them of the error of their ways. It is repentance that is needed. Again, connecting words to behavior. So how do we engage people who have been deceived, who are far from the gospel? We see God's role in it. We see him, his work, as the ultimate hope for those who have been carried away by false teaching. We recognize then, according to verse 26, that those who are doubting the gospel, those who are departing from God's word and saying no to Jesus, are not just misinformed, are not just confused, but are actually influenced by Satan himself. They're ensnared by the devil. So as we speak, as we speak the words of the gospel, as we tell people God's word, we realize that a miracle of the Holy Spirit must accompany our words in order for faith to happen. That's what we need to acknowledge. We speak the word to people hoping that God may grant them repentance, that he would make them come to their senses, come to a knowledge of the truth, and be saved. Well, we need to end. So let me close by saying this. We want to be people of the word. That's the point of this passage. Not people of empty, babbling, quarrelsome words, but people who build our lives and words and beliefs on the Bible which contains the truth and the power of God. So the call to us today is clear. Be grounded in the Bible. Friends, read it, study it, listen to it preached, regulate what you say according to it, correct others on the basis of it, and pray that God will bring many more to repentance as they believe it and see the truth of Jesus Christ in it. Well, I'll end with... This verse from Isaiah, Isaiah 66, 2, which I think could be almost a theme verse of the entire Bible. God is speaking, 
Isaiah 66, 2, and he says, I don't need your temples, I don't need your money, your offerings, everything in creation belongs to me. He says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. That is the case in Isaiah's day. It was the case in Paul's day, and it is the case today. Who does God look for? What kind of person does he want? People who are humble, people who are contrite, who repent and are cleansed in Christ, and people who tremble at his word. May that be true of us. Let's pray. So, Father, would you keep us humble? Would you help us to recognize that apart from Christ, we are filthy vessels made only, fit only for dishonorable use, and that in Christ, through his cleansing blood, we can be set apart as useful to you, our gracious Lord and Master. And so would we immerse ourselves in your good word so that we will be ready for the good work that you have for us even this week. And we give ourselves to you with joy for that task. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.